Library Land Loves. I'm Michelle Arbuckle. Have the past 19 months consisted of endless walks punctuated only by travel documentaries and thoughts of faraway journeys? Anyone? Well, if so, then I think today's episode is just the ticket. Today, I am so grateful to be speaking with Library Land's own Ken Haig. Ken has spent most of his career in Ontario Public Libraries and most recently retired as the CEO of Collingwood Public Library. But he also belongs to this very interesting group of library people who are also authors in their own rights. Ken authored his first memoir based on his time spent teaching in Bhutan, and most recently a non-fiction travel book retracing the traditional roots of medieval pilgrims from Winchester to Canterbury. It's part travelogue, part memoir, part literary history, and follows a sort of spiritual journey after the death of Ken's father. So today we're going to talk to Ken about the process of writing his new book, and he's going to bring you his top five travel books. So we'll be right back with Ken. Hello, Ken. Welcome to Libraryland. Hello, Michelle. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy that we get a chance to to chat today, and I was very interested to hear about the new book that uh, that just was published, just published yet also al- already a 2021 finalist for the Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize for nonfiction. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, that was a huge surprise. Actually, I was sitting down to breakfast and decided to check my email, and there was this, um, you know. Uh, email with the subject heading saying Writers Trust finalists, and I opened it up, and it it was just a press release. And I'm scrolling through, thinking, oh, I wonder who's on the list this year. And then there was my title, so I just about, I just, I don't know. It was like it's a huge surprise, but it's a wonder, it's wonderful um, to be on that list. And and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's such a great list to be recognized on too. You have yeah, you know, really good colleagues on that list for sure. Well, very scary competition. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I'm wondering if you want to tell us a little bit more about the book and kind of what your goals were, what you wanted to capture with your most recent title. Um, well, it started as a as a trip uh, that my father and I were going to take when he retired, but he died. Um, you mentioned that. And, and, and so a, a few years later, uh, the idea came up that maybe I would do the trip on my own, um, partly as a way to honor my father, partly because I was kind of in a dark place myself and I was trying to figure out where my life was heading and what to do next. And I'm, I'm very fortunate in being married to a wonderful woman who was very supportive, who said, you know, do it, just go, mm-hmm. we'll be fine. The kids and I will be fine. Go do the trip, do it as a way to remember your father and, you know, take the time to think about what you want to do next. What's the next step in your life. And so that was the, the, the sort of gestation of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I hadn't really planned on writing a book, um, but when I got home, I had the idea, I thought, well, this would make a good magazine article, and I started writing it, and then it got longer and longer, and I realized <laughs> I wasn't writing a magazine article, I was writing a book. Wow. And the, the the sort of serendipitous thing that happened was that a group of people had come to me at the Collingwood Public Library and said they wanted to start a writer's group, and would mm. I facilitate that? So I did. So. Uh, twice a month, we had this group of, of local writers who were meeting and sharing the stuff they were working on. And so I took part in that group and I needed to bring something to that meeting. So I brought this book. So every two weeks, I would bring a, a selection that I was right working on. And it was great because it gave me a deadline. I was mm-hmm. pushed to get something written every every two weeks. And I also had an audience. So uh, people I could read it to and they could tell me whether it was any good or not. And so that's how the book got written. Um, that's so, incredible. Well, yeah, a lot of support. So 
yeah, if there are people out there listening and, you know, they want to write a book, check your local public library, see if there's, see if there's a writer's group in the area and join it. It really is a good in, um, push to get things done. So were you writing during the pandemic or was it largely finished at that point? It was finished. I guess okay. something people, people don't realize about writing a book is that even when you finish writing the book, it's going to take a couple of years before it hits the, you know, the bookstore shelves. Because Absolutely. The, the yeah. publishers have their own um, agenda and it takes time to go through all the steps. So, yeah. 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 Where did you continue writing through the, I'm just curious if, if that kind of creative out, outlet is healing to you or, you know, helped during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I, I've been trying to write a novel. Um, it's, it's going slowly though, but I'm not yeah. a quick, I'm not a quick writer. It took me two years to write this book. So wow, it'll, it'll be a while great. before the novel's finished. So I had a question, which I, I guess you've kind of answered, which is, I'm curious, you know, with the list you're bringing today and with yourself, people who write about travel, are you taking notes of things as you're traveling? Like as you were walking every day, were you mentally kind of filing things away or taking notes or voice memos? Or is this all just based on recollection? Um, a lot of it is recollection, but I did keep a diary. So, mm -hmm. and I wasn't writing it as I was walking. I was sitting down at the end of the day and, and just trying to remember everything that happened during the day and writing it all down as quickly as I could before it sort of disappeared. I have to admit, um, I have tried using like a voice recorder mm -hmm. when I've been writing other things, but I always feel like an idiot walking around talking. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you hear half, half yeah. of a phone conversation when somebody's walking down the street. So I, ga I gave up on that. I think it's better just to, to write from recollection. And I have a pretty yeah. good memory. Once I get started, stuff comes back to me. Yeah, that's great. I'm so curious. I, I was not aware of this path, uh, the, this path that you walked to Canterbury. Um, I'm very familiar with and have long been wanting to take part in the pilgrimage of Compostela. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as I've researched it and as the years go by, it just seems like it's becoming more and more populated and, you know, there's more crime along the route and it's dangerous for, for women in some cases. So I'm curious about this, this path. What, tell us a little bit more about, you know, you're in, you and your father, the, the plan to do that and where that came from. The idea was mine. I'd, I'd read an article about it, um, and my father uh, it was very active in his local church. So in, it was an Anglican parish, and, and he'd been very active in it all his life. And so I thought it might appeal to him to do a walk to Canterbury, because Canterbury is the sort of headquarters for an Anglicanism worldwide. And it's also at one time was a, was a shrine to the murdered Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. So it was, mm -hmm. a, it was in the Middle Ages a very popular pilgrimage plate. Mm -hmm. So people have started to revive the pilgrimage route as a kind of as an alternative to places like Compostela, because as you said, it's really really populated. Hundreds of thousands of people do that every summer, mm -hmm. but not that many people walk this route, and it's also shorter. And I only had two weeks of holidays, so <laughs> I, I couldn't do the Compostela three weeks right. of holidays. But more reasonable. More yeah, reasonable. It was a more reasonable length of time, and and I also thought, yeah, that this is something people don't do very often, so it's, mm -hmm. it won't be as crowded, um, but probably just as interesting. And that's what I found. I found it wasn't it wasn't just that the pilgrimage route was interesting. It was all the other things that were associated with the road I was walking. As you might be aware, there's a lot of literary um, history along that route as well. Jane Austen lived along that route, and you know uh, Charles Dickens wrote about places along that route, and of course Chaucer wrote about places along that route. So I was thinking about those things as I was walking too, which for a literature geek like me was was 
exciting. It was nice to go and stand at, you know, Jane Austen's house and stand in her dining room right by the table where she wrote her books kind of thing. That was, that was pretty exciting. I imagine. Yeah, that's incredible. I just have to read this one quote uh, from the book, which I think is so interesting. The quote is, Day 11 is a turning point. It's the day when I stop thinking about the past or worrying about the future and start living in the present. Every good holiday reaches this tipping point when you realize that you have discarded the baggage you've been carrying along with you and you begin to exist in the present tense. I love that. I think that's true of any long holiday. It's happened to me on canoe trips too, where, you know, after a couple of days of paddling, suddenly you realize you're not thinking about back home anymore. You're just right, right there in the moment. And that's, I think a good holiday does that. Yeah. Yes. I think we all could use a little time out of our homes for sure. So that's something I'm striving to get to. How have you been this past, you know, 20 months not being able to travel anywhere? Are you someone who really likes to get out there and, and, and travel and hike and experience yeah. the world? Yeah, I, I, in fact, one of the things I was sort of hoping to do when I retired was do the, the Compostela walk. <laughs> so right. that, that's off the books for the, time, for the time being. Another thing I was hoping to do is that you mentioned that my first book was about teaching in Bhutan. And, and mm. I was sort of hoping in retirement maybe to do some uh, volunteer work somewhere in the world as well. So again, with COVID, that's that's not going to happen anytime soon. So I have been yeah. feeling a little bit frustrated. But mm-hmm. I live in a lovely part of Ontario. There's lots of good hiking around here on the Bruce Trail. So I've been I've been getting out during that's during great. the day. Yeah, that's good. Well, speaking of walking, I know a number of your titles are going to refer to that. So mm-hmm. why don't we get into your top five list for today? So your list is is it very generally? You you mentioned to me that. Uh, top five books related to travel, top five travel books. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, my, my top five. I, I, wouldn't okay. say, I wouldn't say it's a best of list. These are the best travel books ever written because <clears throat> there's right. so many. It would be really hard to narrow it down to just five. Yeah. These books all speak to me for one reason or another. Uh, so I put them on my list. I also just want to suggest some of them because I think other people might enjoy reading them. And some of them mm-hmm. are a few years old now. Okay, great. Let's start with the first one. Um, so the first one I chose was an older one, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Travels with a Donkey, which was published in 1879. Um, and we, we tend to think of Stevenson as a novelist, um, you know, as he wrote Treasure Island and Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But he, but he started his writing life as an essayist and a travel writer. This was his second book. His first book was also a travel book. And I really think it's worth rereading because Stevenson is, is an elegant writer and he can um, evoke in a phrase what it would take me paragraphs to say. Um, it's a short book. It's funny. Um, it's written. It's a walking holiday. But you have to remember, it's a walking holiday in the 19th century when there was no such thing as downfilled mummy bags or light nylon tents. So he, he decides he needs to buy a donkey to carry all his gear for his 12-day walk. And part of the humor of the book is that he knows nothing about leading or driving a donkey, and the donkey is very uh, stubborn. And, right. and so that's half the humor of the book is him trying to learn how to deal with this donkey. So, um, But there's also, there's also a quote in it. If I have time, I'll just read, because I think it's one of the best um, reasons for, for traveling that, I, that I've ever read. Yeah. So ahead. this is Stevenson then. He says, for my part, I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. I travel for travel's sake. The great affair is to move, to feel the needs and hitches of our life more nearly, to come down off this feather bed of civilization, and to find the globe granite underfoot and strewn with cutting flints. Alas, as we get up in life and are more preoccupied with our affairs, 
even a holiday is a thing that must be worked for. So mm -hmm. I thought that was a good a good reason to travel, just to to get back to basics and and feel the globe granite underfoot, as he says. Absolutely. So, yeah. I was fascinated in researching because I've not read this book, um, but the fact that I read it, it's one of the earliest accounts of hiking and camping outdoors for recreation. That's fascinating. Yeah. I guess you know, I never think about a world where you weren't, where people weren't doing that or that wasn't you know, a norm, but the fact that the people he comes across as he's traveling are assume he's a traveling salesman or you know, <laughs> right. ped peddler of some kind. Yeah, and that's, that's right. That's really interesting. Yeah. 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 That's great. All right, so we started. We went way back for your for your number one, 1879. What's your number two? Um, it's, it's a new one. It's a Canadian one. Um, I just read it last year. It's by Kate Harris, and it's called Lands of Lost Borders. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really a good book. It's and I. It's it's not about walking. It's about a long distance cycling trip. But the same right. kind of idea. Um, she begins the book by saying that when she was young, she really wanted to be an explorer, but then she starts to realize that. You know everything has been explored everything has sort of been mapped and mm -hmm. measured um so when she's in university it's a very funny passage in it when she's in university she takes part in this um experiment for people who want to be astronauts to mars i think it was mocked in a in a recent tv show called um moon base or something where you live in this dome and you have to grow your own food and if you go outside the dome you have to put on a full space suit so she took part in this for a while and then realized it was just kind of ridiculous so she gave it up mm -hmm. um but she decided she and her friend Mel were going to cycle the old Silk Road. So they started in Turkey and they cycled across Asia to Ley and they encountered all of the difficulties that you would expect. There was bad weather, um, dangerous places that they were cycling through, all kinds of problems with visas and things like that, crossing different borders. But she did make it eventually. And, and on the way, the question she keeps asking herself is, is it still possible to be an explorer in, in, in the modern world? And she concludes that it is because being an explorer is more a state of mind or a, mm. um, than it is about finding new things because everything is going to be new to you. And it's more about pushing boundaries and trying things that, that scare you. So it's a really good book. And I found myself talking to her when I was reading the book saying, I don't agree with that. Or, or you know, well, that's true. But <laughs> so a really good book does that. It starts a sort of dialogue in your brain and you find yourself talking to the to the writer. I think it would be a good book for book clubs, too. Right. So. Yeah. I was, when I was reading the, the Good Minds reviews or sorry, the um, Goodreads reviews, um, there were lots of people who I think also found themselves arguing with her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the one wrote, I fear we would not get along as travel mates. <laughs> that was an interesting review. But yeah. Yeah, yeah I like the idea of the bike trip. That's, you know, it's, yeah. it's a different experience than walking for sure. Yeah. Um, but I can't imagine, my gosh, spending that long on a bike is not yeah. for me. Yeah, and, and just some, some awful roads and awful weather. And yeah. I mean, two women traveling alone is not yes. not is dangerous, right? So yeah. so it's, it's quite the trip. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So that was 2018, The Lands of Lost Borders by Kate Harris. What's our number three? Number three is a sentimental favorite for me. Uh, it's Colin Thubrin's Behind the Wall, and it was published in 1987. Um, Thubrin is a great travel writer. He's written lots lots of really good um, travel books. In fact, just published one on the Amur River that runs between. Um, China and Russia. 
Um, but this one was published about China. And the reason I loved it was because I went off to teach in China in 1990. And just before I left, my grandmother gave me a copy of this book and I just tucked it in my backpack and headed off. So while I was living in China, I was reading Thubrin's book about China, which had been written just a couple of years before. And so I would find myself reading and looking up and saying, yeah, that's, that's exactly how it is. And his observations were so much like my own. And, and the China at that time was a sort of colorless, grim, crowded place, very polluted. Uh, it was a land of uh, black bicycles and conformity. And every conversation you had with somebody, there lurked um, sort of the specter of the cultural revolution in the background. So Thubrin travels for four months in China, does a great loop all around the country. Um, and he learned Mandarin, so he was able to have conversations with people. So he, people tended to open up to, to him and talk about their lives, and, and I found that really interesting. And one of the things I admire about Thubrin is he doesn't put himself forward in his books. He's sort of commenting on what he sees, but it's not really about him. And, and I think that's hard to do. That's, that's interesting. But what also is interesting about this book to me is I just reread it this year. And the China that he describes and that I experienced doesn't exist anymore. Um, it's mm -hmm. completely changed. The roads, you go to Beijing today and they're choked with automobiles, not bicycles, the way I, I remember. And the consumer goods that my students could only dream of having, now everybody has. And there mm -hmm. seems to be a new shopping mall opening every week. And um, so in a way, the book has value as a kind of historical document because it gives us a picture of, of uh, China just before the Tiananmen Square incident. Mm -hmm. And and so the China today is is completely different. So yeah, anyway, absolutely. I, it, for me, it's as I said, it's a sentimental favorite because I took it with me when I went to China, and my grandmother had given it to me. So yeah, okay, that's great. So that was behind the wall: a journey through China by Colin Thubrin. Thubrin, I think that's how you say his name. Yeah. What's our number four? This is another new one. Um, it's it's by. Robert McFarlane, who's who's a really exciting new writer in nonfiction. Um, this is not his latest book, but but it's the one that I like the best because it's um, called The Old Ways, A Journey on Foot. So, of course, mm -hmm. it's about walking. So um, I've read all his books, but this is my favorite. And, and it's really interesting because he doesn't discuss one walk. He discusses many walks. So, mm -hmm. so every chapter discusses a different walk. Most of them take place in Great Britain, but he also he also does the Camino and he also does a walk through the Holy Land, and he does um, a walk around Mount Kailash in, in Tibet. So mm. so some interesting walks. And and what's interesting to me is is that um, he talks about them, he talks about the history of the walks and what they mean to us as human beings. So he covers things like history, cartography, geology, archaeology, and the literature of the walks. So he really dives deep and does a lot of digressions. I love that kind of writing. Mm -hmm. um, the most interesting walk to me that he described was one called the Broomway. And it's a path off the coast of Essex in England, and it's only available at low tide. So you're actually walking on the, the tidal flats. And oh, it's wow. called the Broomway because the, the path is marked by these poles that are stuck in the sand. So they're right. called brooms. Uh -huh. The problem is it's very treacherous because there's places where there's quicksand and stuff. So you have to follow these poles. And it's it's more than 100 people have known to have died while trying to cross this this stretch of sand. But it is a, a nice shortcut for the locals. Um, so, you know, just the idea of of walking on something that 
you know, if you went off the path, you would die. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. And of course, he, some adrenaline there. Yeah, some adrenaline. And of course, he does all the walks that he describes. So he describes walking out in this place in, in a foggy day and just the fear that, that sort of captures you as you're, as you're walking across wondering, because the tides come in very quickly too. Like if you've timed it wrong, you could find yourself underwater. So uh, anyway, it's a very good book. And I, and I think he's a really exciting writer. Um, his most recent book is called Underland. And he looks at our... our sort of human beings um, relationship with things underground. So he looks at mines and caves and tombs and, and the mythology of the underworld. And he, the, the book is about that. So that's also really worth reading. I was, I was really interested in the description of him as an intellectual walker yeah. and the idea that um, he has this quote, uh, walking as enabling sight and thought rather than encouraging retreat and escape. I think that's really interesting that um, he's thinking about, you know, he has to walk and get out and like move through a landscape in order to process his thoughts. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, there, there are different types of walks sometimes. Frequently I'm listening to music or a podcast, but those moments where you don't listen to anything just to the sounds around you when you're out and you're walking, I, I, I do find that I'm processing thoughts differently or in different ways. and. I think that's really interesting, especially mm -hmm. right now. I think there's so many people that are, are trying to do that kind of thing. Yep. Well, it's interesting, too, because a lot of philosophers and writers um, made that connection between walking and thinking. So mm -hmm. um, Kierkegaard, Thoreau, um, Wordsworth, you know, you can just name lots of people who, when they needed to work something out, would go for a walk and, yeah. and they would find they could get their thoughts straight. So now mm -hmm. he's talking about kind of being absorbed. McFarlane's talking about trying to be absorbed in the landscape he's walking through. But I think for a lot of people, and myself included, you know, if you're stuck with something, it's nice just to go for a walk and you find by the time you get back, you've got it all figured out. Something yeah. something about the, the the rhythm and the pace of walking really helps you to think. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a meditative process. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. And that brings us to number five. Well, the, five, the number five is, is my all-time favorite book. Um, so that it's, again, a sort of a sentimental favorite. Um, it's Patrick Lee Fermer's A Time of Gifts, and it was published in 1977. Um, so Fermer's writing about a time when he was 18 years old. He, he'd not done well in school. He was contemplating going into the army. Um, but instead what he does is he borrows a backpack and a walking stick and a pair of hobnailed boots and a warm coat and decides he's going to walk from Holland to Istanbul, which he calls Constantinople, and it sort of sets the tone for the book because he's very romantic. He he insists on calling it Constantinople all the way through the book, um, but it's an amazing walk. Um, and and he, he only has a couple of pounds a day, and so he's he's planning to sleep in barns and haylofts and stuff. But when he gets to Germany, he meets this aristocrat who says, "Well, let me write some letters for you, to um, you know family and friends, so you have places to stay." So. So as he's traveling across old Europe, he's he's staying one night in a barn and the next night in a castle on uh, absolutely luxurious conditions. So that I think that's why he calls the book a time of gifts because he's but he was also just a very charming young man and people really fell for him. And I think even in old age, he still managed to be this charmer. And he was just he was such a good talker. Right. So people always wanted to invite him to parties and stuff. But it's an amazing trip. So he was 18 years old. The year was 1933. Hitler's just come to power in Germany. And so he's witnessing firsthand sort of the changes that are that are taking place. And and he walks through, especially in Eastern Europe, um, a Europe that doesn't exist after the Second World War. So it's it's also kind of capturing a time. But the interesting thing is, 
even though he's writing about a trip he did when he was 18, he's probably 60 when he writes the book. So he's looking back in time at, at what he was like as a young man. And, it, and, he's, and he's got this sort of double vision of the exuberance of being a young man on a great adventure and then an old man who's lived through the Second World War and most of the 20th century and, and, and thinking about all the changes and, and about the young person he had been. It's, it's a great book. He writes beautifully. It's not for everybody, though, because he has a tendency to write a very Baroque-style English, and a lot of people find it a bit too much, but I, I fell in love with it. And I think he's the writer I would most like to write like if I could. Wow. All right. That's a great... Uh... That's a, that's a great call to us all that A Time of Gifts by Patrick Lee Fermer. That's the first one was published 1977, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Those are amazing titles, amazing suggestions, five books there for people who are feeling the travel bug and wanting to kind of at least get out in their minds and explore some new lands. And maybe it seems to me like the theme of, of walking or traveling by foot or not by very expensive means is certainly a trend there. And uh, I think we can all relate to that right now. So we are going to get to our last segment of the show, which is get to know your library person right after this break. Okay, so now this is our last segment, Ken. I have given you your 10 rapid fire questions. And the first one is, what is something people often get wrong about you? I think because I'm usually placed in a position of authority, people assume that I'm very self-confident, but nothing could be further from the truth. I think I'm a good bluffer, but there's always this fear that someone is going to expose me as a fraud. That's kind of followed me through my whole life. And I feel that way writing as well. When you put a book out there and you publish it and everybody says, oh, it's so good. And you think, is it really? (laughs) So, yeah. The imposter syndrome runs deep in us all, I think, for sure. That's exactly what it is. Number two, the last TV show you binged and loved. Ah, so during lockdown, I became hooked on K-dramas. Um, I, I ran out of things on Netflix to watch, and I noticed there was a lot of South Korean television. So I, I got hooked. I started watching these shows. So there, there are many that were really good, but the one that I loved was called Reply 1988. And it's about five high school seniors and their families. They live on this small alley in Seoul. It's sort of a working class neighborhood. It's really funny, very emotional, um, and kind of heartrending because it's all about the end of youth. So it sort of it sort of charts the the course of these high school seniors as they move into adulthood. So and it's mm-hmm. sort of looking back very nostalgically. And the reason they picked the year 1988 was because that was the year that Seoul hosted the Summer Olympics. So it was mm-hmm. a big event in everybody's life. So that yeah. they, and the fun thing about it is it's like a lot of shows like that is that I guess for Koreans, it's very nostalgic. They can look back and they say, oh, yeah, these are the songs we were listening to in 1988. And those were the posters we had hanging on our wall when we were teenagers. Right. And so, so they've done a good job of sort of recapturing that that period. And by the time I got to the final episode, I was in tears. It, it was it was just wow. so moving. It was so moving. It was really, really good. All right. Reply 1988. Reply 1988. Yep. Never heard of it. That's great. Uh, what is a concert that you'll never forget? Um, it was a Bruce Coburn concert. I think it was 1987. I was a student at Queen's University, mm-hmm. and uh, it was held in the arena there, and they put the stage in the middle of the arena facing the long side, so everybody sitting in the bleachers was really close to the stage. It was an amazing concert, and at the end we gave them a big standing ovation, and they came back up on the stage and then played for another hour. It was amazing. I think they were all having such a good time 
um, Bruce Coburn just sort of turned to his band and said, do you want to keep playing? And they said, sure. And, and so we, we ended up <laughs> having a concert that was like twice as long as advertised. And I think everybody just had a really good time. And then by far, that's the best concert I've ever been to. Amazing. That's great. Yeah. What has been, what is your favorite meal? Uh, a good hamburger um, mm -hmm. with a, like a homemade hamburger. I think nothing, nothing tops that. Okay. Yeah. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, when I was young, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Mm. So, and I, I remember reading a book um, called God, God's Graves and Scholars by C.W. Serum, and it's, I think it's still out there. It's probably still sitting on library shelves. And it was just sort of a history of archaeology, and there was different chapters about Heinrich Sleeman and Howard Carter and, you know, discovering the tomb of Tutankhamun and stuff. And I read that book, and I thought, wow, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, but I didn't. I ended up doing other things as, as life so I think looking back, yeah, I would I would probably go back to school some point and study archaeology if I could. Okay, there you go. On the flip side, what is a profession you would not want to attempt? Anything in the medical line. And, mm. and the reason for this is I, I hate needles and the sight of blood makes me faint. So yeah. I, I would be completely useless as a doctor. We would but, prefer you not to yep, be in the medical yep. line as well then. Good. Yep. <laughs> what is your idea of happiness? Um. I talk about this a little bit in my book, and, I, and I, I sort of came to the conclusion that happiness is something that usually arrives unexpectedly, and it comes from being with people you love or doing something you enjoy. Uh, you don't really pursue happiness so much as it finds you. So mm -hmm. if you're interested in being happy, I guess my advice is hang around with people you love and, and do things that you enjoy, and you'll find that you are happy. Mm -hmm. Okay. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, we talked about that a little bit already. I, th I think I think being outdoors and going on a hike in the woods on a fall day, like I did this past weekend, um, yeah. just makes me really happy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that something that you'll do before you sit down to write? Now, then, is that like is that a, a process that you go through when you're in the in the is that an activity you do when you're engaged in writing? Do you regularly go out for walks mm. to kind of fuel that process? It might become my process. Um, the problem in the past was I was writing, I, I was working full time and I have three children. And so writing was something I did when I had a spare moment. So it, it might've been, you know, in an evening or a weekend. It was, it was just wherever I could find the time. So, but now that I'm retired, yeah. <laughs> I think going on a daily walk is, one of my goals. So I, yeah. I think that'll help me yeah, straighten things out in my head. That's great. And what turns you off creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, not everybody's going to like this, but cell phones. Mm. I, I really think they're evil. And I think there are so <laughs> many reasons that they are evil that we wouldn't have time to discuss them today. But um, I, I do think the world would be better off without them. I just I watch people I know, and they just seem to spend way too much time staring at their cell phones and and not looking up and not engaging with real people right does that mean that you're walking without a phone i don't own a cell phone um really? which is yeah which is which is funny because everybody assumes you do these days right so yeah. they, keep, they keep saying give me your cell phone number or i'll text you or I'll, <laughs> yeah. I, have, I say i don't have a cell phone you'll have i have a still have a landline you can phone me at home and there is an answering machine mm -hmm. um if you want to get a hold of me the best way is probably email i do think email is a good idea i didn't like it at first but i've kind of warmed up to it but, okay. but right. no i can do without a cell phone all right and our last question to get to know you ken what is one thing that you're grateful for right now uh, my family. Um, I, I didn't 
start off life expecting to be a parent. It wasn't sort of in my vision of where I would be in the future, but I found that that uh, it's the best thing that's happened to me. I, I find my family anchors me. They give me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Um, and the, the, the most joyous times I have are the times I spend with, with my wife and my kids. So mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Ken. This has been great. It's been great getting to know more about you and the process of writing. And, uh, you know, I, as I said at the beginning, I'm fascinated by people in library land who also write books, especially when they don't write about libraries. So <laughs> uh, nothing against those people, but thank you for going on adventures and writing about them. And uh, uh, I think your book is so interesting and it's definitely put a fire in me to learn more about that trail and uh, and maybe plan a trip of my own whenever border openings allow. So yeah. thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much again to Ken Haig. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Library Land Loves. Please don't forget to drop me a line if there's something that you'd like to talk about or something that your library is doing that you want to discuss. My contact information is in the show notes and I'd love to hear from you. We'll also put in the show notes links to all of the books that Ken mentioned today so that you can explore them for yourself. Take care and stay safe. We'll talk to you next week.